Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. You know what? This morning I was like, why do we get summer every year? But I never feel like I'm used to it. And then I was like, oh yeah, because it keeps getting hot every year. Yeah, it does. It pissed me off. So next year I'll have like five fans. And the year after that, I'll have like three air conditioning machines, things. And I'll just keep growing until I die. Well, hopefully next year we will each be in a place where we can afford our own level yes. of air conditioning at comfort. I will always pay, pay for air conditioning. Will mm-hmm. I see and be angry and write mean letters to the companies because they charge so much? Sure. But I'm still going to have it and pay for it. It's fine. The heat will not stop us. It didn't stop yes. us in Florida. It's not going to stop us now. That's right. If I can survive summers in both Arizona and Florida, plus San Diego, I, I feel like I have to be able to handle it anywhere. Thank goodness I have a fan on my face right now. So I'm just like, okay, I'm calm. I'm calm. I'm cool. I can do this. I am here. I do try to have a little bit of hope for the future. I'm trying. That's good. Which is what we should do with the church. <laughs> I was wondering is, how you were going to segue that. What a smooth, <laughs> what a smooth transition. Is the church perfect? No, but we're trying. And one of the things we can do to be better about that is by understanding the church better, by understanding the people of the church, by understanding the members better. And one of the things that we do need to take into account for this is where our members are located because Mm -hmm. the world is very big. So today we want to talk about something vital that we tend to forget, especially since we're in America. Like for anyone who is listening to us from outside of America, you're amazing. How did you find us? But yeah, so most of our listeners, we're all here in America But the thing is, we are a worldwide church. According to the church website, there are 16,663,663 members in uh, 160 plus countries and territories with printed materials and congregations meeting in over 188 languages. Not only that, but within the first 117 years of the church's establishment, which would have been 1830 to 1947, membership grew from six people to one million. So the bulk of the growth of the church's membership has has occurred since 1947. So basically 73 years. We're not including 2021 because we don't have data for it yet, but in the last 73 years, like we've grown from one million to 16 plus million. That's insane. Very impressive. I mean, granted, there is still a lot of work to do. We're not in every country. Um, and we're not we're not like everywhere. Not everyone knows who we are. But the thing is it's important to highlight and focus on the fact that this church is not just specific to the USA. In this year's April conference 2021, Elder Gong gave one of my favorite talks so far. He said since 1998, more church members have lived outside then inside the United States and Canada. By 2025, we anticipate as many church members may live in Latin America as in the United States and Canada. Really, this is a further reminder for members of the church in the U.S. that we are not indicative of the entire membership of the church. We are not the gold standard. Do not think of the church as American. Like, don't do it, guys. Amen. So 
The church website has a couple of sections that specifically highlight the worldwide church. So one is the church newsroom where they show specific statistical breakdowns of each country that the church is in. And the other is the global history section where they highlight 49 country statistics and stories about how the church came into that country. It's a really awesome resource and we actually pulled the bulk of our information for this episode from those two resources, specifically the global history section. On the overview page of the global history section, it says, shortly after the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized, the Lord directed the saints to preach the gospel throughout the world. For he shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, the Lord said in 1831. Prepare ye, prepare ye, O my people, let the cry go forth among all people. And that can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 133, verses 3 through 4 and verse 10. Accordingly, faithful saints have accepted calls to preach throughout the world. The Book of Mormon has been translated in full or in part into more than 110 languages, and congregations have been established and flourished the world over. While most Latter-day Saints understand that the church is a global faith, the history of the church in many parts of the world is not well known. These global histories seek to share the inspiring story of how the message of the restoration has been embraced and shared around the globe. Each history contains a brief overview, a selection of stories of faith, a chronology, statistical information, and additional sources readers might consult. The stories focus on the local members who have heard and heeded the Savior's call to declare the word in the regions around about them and who have exercised faith to overcome the unique challenges of being Latter-day Saints in their homelands. So not only is the global history section of the church website an important resource to note, um, but the Liahona is also highlighting a different country every single month in the magazine. And it's like a very brief, high-level way of outlining the statistics, the number of the members, the wards, the stakes, missions, etc., with a few fun facts about the country. So check out the Liahona every single month to see what country they're highlighting, and you'll learn a little bit more about the worldwide church. That is amazing. So cool. I mean, I remember like thinking about this as when I was growing up, considering how, well, like everything I hear about of the church is all very American centric. And I mean, we all like to turn back to certain verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that like kind of highlight and say, America is great. America is doing this. America is meant to be this kind of thing. And we make that into such a thing that we almost idolize it and it's very problematic. So I think it's amazing that at least we're doing it now, like we're, we're working on it, continuously improving and educating ourselves, which is super exciting. So with all that said, we are now going to be talking about the history of the church outside of the United States. This is an episode that we're hoping to revisit multiple times in the future because there really are amazing, incredible stories of growth and faith around the world. I mean, it's, it's just the two of us, two white American girls who are going to be sharing this. So down the line, we definitely want to have like more stories to be able to share with you, to bring more voices to light. But we're going to be doing our best here. We're going to try and highlight in this episode, one from every continent where the church is present. Currently not Antarctica at this point in time, but who knows? All right. We're going to just go through the continents in alphabetical order because that makes the most logical sense. And that way we're not like doing like preferential treatment to any of the continents. So the first one 
to start off with is Africa. Because the list of countries is so long that make up the continent of Africa, we are going to spare you the length of me reading all of the names of the countries in Africa and butchering them atrociously. And I'm going to let you know that there are 54 countries that make up the continent of Africa. I will read you the list of the countries that have the LDS church in it in Africa, because I feel like those are important for us to at least highlight and recognize, because I feel like people only really know like five countries in Africa. At least Americans only know like maybe five countries in Africa on a good day. So I'm going to read that list to you. So the countries that have the LDS church on it in Africa are Angola, Benin, Botswana, Burundi, Cameroon, Cape Verde, Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, Democratic Republic of Congo, Eswatini, Ethiopia, Ghana, Kenya, Lesotho, Liberia, Madagascar, Malawi, Mauritius, Mozambique, Namibia, Nigeria, Republic of Congo, Reunion, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, South Africa, Tanzania, Togo, Uganda, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Is there two Congos? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Also, Eswatini, fun fact, Eswatini is formerly known as Swaziland. Oh, I've heard of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. That place. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Learned Very that this nice. week. So as you can see, there's a pretty sizable list of countries in Africa where the church is. Um, but today we're going to focus on one country and we have chosen Cote d'Ivoire. Can you tell us where it is? Yes, I can. So for those of you that don't know where Cote d'Ivoire is, it's also known as the Ivory Coast. That makes sense. There you go. French yep. at its finest. I, I so it is a small country in the north part of Africa, just above the equator, directly on the Atlantic Ocean. So if you're looking at Africa and you're thinking about like hurricane models, hurricanes basically come out of like right there all the time. All right, cool. So, well, let's dive in. So a few quick stats about Cote d'Ivoire. There are three missions, 250 wards or branches, 14 stakes or districts, 27 family history centers. There are 52,241 members, but it's only like 0.2% of the population, which is wild. And a temple was announced at the April 2015 conference with the groundbreaking ceremony in November 2018. Amazing. Yeah, as you were talking about the, the countries that are in Africa that have LDS members, I recognize a few of them because they've been called out in general conference for the temples that they have or are going to have. They're building a lot of temples in Africa. So in 1987, Cote d'Ivoire was dedicated for the preaching of the gospel. And the first baptisms in the country took place that same year in 1987. By the early 1990s, many Ivoirian youth were serving missions or preparing to serve. In 1993, over 300 attended the first youth conference in the country, and the church grew quickly in Cote d'Ivoire. The first stake was organized in 1997, and the 12th stake was organized just 20 years later. So that's like really rapid growth. On the global history section of the church website, 
they have personal stories and accounts of people who were like the first members in specific countries or like stories of the missionaries who were the first ones there or people who helped with translating the Book of Mormon into their native language. It's just really fascinating. You should go back and take a look at this. So in this story that I'm about to share with you, it's about Philippe and Annalise Assard who joined the church in Germany and they are natives to Cote d'Ivoire, but they had moved abroad when they got married and somehow found the missionaries in Germany while they were living abroad. So they felt completely overwhelmed with blessings once they joined the church. And as Philippe grew and gained experience and knowledge in the gospel, he felt this powerful desire to return to Cote d'Ivoire to share the restored gospel. Philippe recalls, quote, in 1986, after many prayers and fasting with my wife, I decided to return to the Ivory Coast to give what I had received to improve the lot of my family and my people. Um, before leaving Germany, Philippe consulted with church leaders. There were no church units in Cote d'Ivoire, but there were a number of members who had joined the church while in other countries and then returned to Cote d'Ivoire. The Assards were given a list of their names the members who had joined in other countries and then moved back. They were given a list of their names before they left, and Philippe was blessed to be a quote-unquote shepherd of the flock and to gather the members in Cote d'Ivoire. So the story continues to explain how Philippe and Annalise wrote letters to every single person on that list that they were given. And the very first letter that they got in response was from Lucien and Agatha, I'm going to butcher this last name, but Afu who had been baptized while living in France and had been holding sacrament meetings in their home for their family for over two years. The two families met together and they worked diligently to build a branch in Abidjan. They weren't able to stay together as one of the families found a job in another city. However, because of their faith and their combined missionary efforts, there were branches established in both of those cities by 1988. So when the church was officially established in Cote d'Ivoire in 1987, the closest temples were in Johannesburg, South Africa, which is 5,791 miles away, and Bern, Switzerland, which is 2,825 miles away. Yeah, that's the craziest thing. I had to... You're in Africa, but your temple is in Switzerland. Good luck getting there. Oh my goodness. In my research on all of these, I needed to find out where the closest temple was. And the bulk of them were between like two and 6,000 miles away when the church is first established in that country. It's insane. Wow. In 2004, the Accra Ghana temple was dedicated, which made it a closer distance of only 263 miles away. And the saints in Cote d'Ivoire were so thrilled to have a more accessible temple nearby that in their first trip to the temple, the saints endured, this is insane, they endured 18 hours of travel and delays for a four-day trip to the temple. That, for me, as someone who's been very blessed to be not just in, like, America where there's already a ton of temples, but to always live within 30 minutes. No, okay, no, actually, for one year, I was, like, two hours away from one. But even that is very close to nothing, 18 hours, man. Oh my goodness. Insane. Wow. Just wow. However, during their four-day temple trip, 
they performed over 4,000 ordinances for the dead. Amazing. What? So they're at the temple for four days and they're completing over 4,000 ordinances. Then that means over 1,000 are being done each day. Yeah. And you're a part of hundreds. That's, man. So many future temple trips were difficult to travel to due to the Ivoiran civil wars, further border control delays, and many natural disasters that just plagued that portion of Africa. Conversely, many members prepared for these trips by being set apart as temple workers to better serve the Ivoirians whenever there was a temple trip. And each ward and state called multiple family history specialists. By 2013, the Cocody Cote d'Ivoire stake had the highest percentage of the entire church that had submitted names for temple work. The entire church. Mm-hmm. One stake. One stake. Had the highest percentage of the entire church. And I feel like it's important to notice what? that that stake was not an American stake that had the highest percentage of no, names submitted not. to the temple. Amazing, right? No. Yeah, well, like you mentioned earlier, they had nearly 30 family history centers. I didn't grow up doing a lot of that. I knew that my grandmother was a lot into genealogy and the like, but I didn't really know that family history centers were a thing until my late teens. And that even then I was like, okay, there's like one in Salt Lake. I don't even know if there's one in San Diego. And then we had one in Florida that I did not realize for like the first couple of years. Like, we have two? There's two in Orlando, yeah. Oh my gosh. There's probably yeah, I don't know more anything. actually. Maybe. Yeah. See, if, if we were all aware of that stuff, then we could be doing plenty. And they, they knew what they had and they used it to the best of their abilities. And I'm sure that yeah. I'm sure they're still doing just that. Yeah. That is so cool. So to wrap up Cote d'Ivoire, again, in April 2015 General Conference, a temple was announced in Cote d'Ivoire by President Thomas S. Monson. And the groundbreaking took place in November 2018. But yeah, construction is underway. Pretty awesome for Africa and for Cote d'Ivoire. All right. So that was Africa, you guys. We're going to have to move on and maybe do a whole spotlight on that country some other time. All right. Moving on, we're going to talk about Asia. All right. So to encompass Asia, there are 48 countries in all. Then the countries that have the LDS church in it are a bit less. We have Bahrain, Cambodia, China, which is inclusive of Hong Kong and Macau. We have India, Indonesia, Israel, Japan, Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Malaysia, Mongolia, Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Sri Lanka, Taiwan, Thailand, and the United Arab Emirates. Interestingly enough, of course, we're going to be talking about Russia today. We're not going to kind of pointed out on a map because it's really hard to miss it. Russia is the largest country. It encompasses most of Asia, you guys. Okay, so the relationship that the LDS Church has with Russia is very complex. They're not really allowed to go proselyting, but they are allowed to be there. I've had I had a childhood friend who went and served their mission there. And like they had to leave the country every once in a while to get their visas renewed and they would do what they could in their own ways to act as missionaries for the church. All right, so because of this, there aren't many statistics that are available about the church in Russia. However, we do know that there are five missions there, and there was a temple announced in the April 2018 General Conference. 
No location or groundbreaking date has been announced at this time, though. One thing I learned through all of my research about countries like Russia where proselyting is not allowed is that most of them have found loopholes that say proselyting from foreigners is not allowed. However, if you are a local, you are allowed to be a missionary and basically do, all, do as much proselyting as you want. Yeah. So we will discuss that a little bit further when we talk about the country in the North American continent. Um, but yeah, they found a loophole where if you are from that country, you could be a missionary, serve in any of those missions and proselyte. But if you are a foreigner, you are not allowed to. That makes a lot of sense. And it's very interesting because like the older I've gotten, the more I have realized that the church is involved in included in a lot of countries that we don't really, really talk about. Like I had no idea there was very much going on in India until I moved to Florida. And like one of the first FAT activities I went to had like someone who like two people who had served missions there. And I was like, I didn't like even think about them serving missions there because that's it, that was my limited worldview at the time. And they were sharing all these stories and they mentioned how the vast majority of the missionaries there were locals. They just go from one area to the next one kind of thing. So that makes so much sense. That's crazy. Yeah, um, we had a bunch of missionaries from India come to my mission in the Philippines when oh, they yeah. were in between visas. So like oh. they're serving in India, they're doing everything that they can and their visa got close to expiring or if it was like in processing mode, they would send those missionaries to my mission in the Philippines and they would wait out like a transfer or two in our mission and then they would go back to India. Interesting. See, like, is this, I don't know how that information like really helps me do anything more than just understanding the world around me, but even that is very important. All right. So moving forward regarding Russia. So pulled from the website, we can read, as the prophet Joseph Smith began to expand the church's missionary efforts outside of North America, he felt that he should send missionaries to the Russian Empire. In 1843, he called Apostle Orson Hyde and George J. Adams on a mission to introduce the fullness of the gospel to the people of that vast empire. So the mission was envisioned by the prophet, however, was not fulfilled at that time. It wasn't until decades later in 1882 that missionaries started proselyting in Russia. In 1903, Elder Francis M. Lyman of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles visited family as he came to dedicate Russia for the preaching of the restored gospel. Still, missionaries stayed only for a short time, and they only baptized one other convert before World War I began. Before starting this episode, if you had asked me, how long do you think that the church was in Russia? I'd say sometime after the Cold War. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Yeah, same here. <laughs> I didn't know that. How did I not know? That is so fascinating. If there's anyone who already knows all this, we do apologize. But like, this is not as well known as we would like it to be. Like, this is stuff that we have not heard as members who've grown up in the church and have lived in a few different states and countries. So let's keep learning. All right. So then in 1903... The gospel was being preached in Russian, but there was no written materials in Russian. <clears throat> so during that time, members in the area tried translating their own documents in Russian to make missionary work easier. In 1932, Elder Joseph Fielding Smith asked 
Joseph C. Litke, a German-Russian immigrant who joined the church in 1918 and had settled in Utah to translate the Book of Mormon into Russian. His translation was never published, but his translation of Joseph Smith Tells His Own Story became the first Russian church publication in 1936. Meanwhile, Andre K. Anastasion began his own translation of the Book of Mormon. In 1925, Jane, Elder James E. Talmadge of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, then presiding over the British mission, suggested that he translate the Book of Mormon into Russian. In 18 months, with much prayer and contemplation, Andre completed a manuscript translation. He then bought a typewriter with a Russian keyboard and produced a typescript, but the translation sat unused for several years. After World War II, during which Andre served as acting mission president in the United Kingdom, he and his family moved to Utah. There, he renewed his translation work. He reviewed and revised his translation several times and consulted with other Russian speakers. Then in 1960, Elder Gordon B. Hinckley, assistant to the Twelve, requested that Andre submit his translation to the church. Andre felt the need to improve the quality of his work again and undertook another revision. While working on it in 1963, he felt impressed to travel to San Francisco to find someone who could help him. He followed the prompting and, while visiting the store, met a man familiar with Russian religious terminology. His new acquaintance expressed a willingness to help. With his input, Andre finished his work by 1970 and moved on to other translation projects. After additional reviews, the church published the Book of Mormon in Russian in 1980, the year of Andre's death. What? It took so long to get it that took, translation. It took like so 60 years. It started in 1925 and it got published in 1980. Insane. That's, that's crazy. I can't even imagine holding on to that project for that long. Like not just an individual, because obviously that's not within like one person's lifetime. Somewhat he died before he saw the publication. But like, I just can't imagine the church sitting on a project for like 60 years and just be like, eh, right? it's fine. It's no big deal. I mean, I do get that th that they would want to get it right. But also, yeah, like they, they could have, they could have tried a little bit. That also means, though, that the church had been in Russia for nearly 100 years by that point in time without a Book of Mormon available to them in their own native language, which I think then takes incredible faith then to be a part of a church where you cannot read its book. I don't know. This is crazy. It's, it's very impressive and very scary all at, all at once. All right, so... In terms of a temple for members to go to during the nearly 150 years of the church being in Russia, the members didn't really have many options until after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The bulk of the members lived in Western Russia, so when the wall then came down, they were able to go to the Stockholm Sweden Temple. Throughout the 1990s, the church spread to Eastern Russia, which would drive the members up to the Seoul South Korea Temple as the church grew. Since then, temples have been dedicated in Finland, Ukraine, and other Eastern Asian countries, providing more accessible temples for the members. In 2018, President Nelson announced a temple to be built in Russia, which stunned everyone, including members in Russia. One member said, we didn't believe that in the near future we would hear anything like that. If the Lord wants to build a temple here, he wants it to be busy. Honestly, I still struggle with the idea that 
if I would want to go to a temple, I would have to go to a different country. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild to me. It's such a like it's such a privileged thing to say, but like Yes. That's it's that's crazy. The thing. Like we don't it's hard to see that you're privileged until you see a contrast. And even then it's kind of mind blow. It it is mind blowing. You begin to realize all that you've taken for granted, all that you haven't understood that people have had to go through good and bad to get what they want where they are today. As someone who like passed by the Orlando temple every day to work, like to then imagine, Hey, like we're going to take a road trip into another country. I just, it just makes me think I'm very privileged. Yes. But these other people are so much better than me now because of this. I just think global members of the church are incredible and they are very patient for as they wait for everything to come their way. Yeah. And if there is to be a temple in Russia, then I do hope that they get it soon because those members definitely deserve it. Everyone deserves to have easy access to a temple. So now we're going to move on to the continent of Australia slash Oceania because it's not just the country of Australia that makes up the continent. It actually is 28 countries and territories that are owned by other countries like Australia, New Zealand, the US, England, and France that make up all of Oceania. So the church is located in American Samoa, Australia, Cook Islands, Fiji, French Polynesia, Guam, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, New Caledonia, Niu, Northern Mariana Islands, Palau, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu, and Vanuatu. And yes, there are two different territories of Samoa and American Samoa. They're two different things. Samoa is its own country, and American Samoa is an American-owned territory. Geography, man. Anyways, so today we have chosen to go over Kiribati. So for those of you that don't know where Kiribati is or what it is, Kiribati is a country of 33 islands halfway between Hawaii and Fiji in the South Pacific. So I am actually going to do the quick stats at the end of this country's explanation because the growth is just so impressive that I wanted to like share everything at the end. So let's jump in. What's fascinating about the way that the church was established in Kiribati is that it was mainly done through high school students doing missionary work in their high school. What? Yes. In Tonga, there is a church-owned high school called Liahona High School, where a lot of students from Kiribati would go for better educational opportunities than they could get on their islands. In 1975, Students from Kiribati who had attended Liahona High School in Tonga returned to their home country as missionaries. The early converts of these young Kiribati missionaries established the first branch of the church and held their meetings on the campus of their old school. This is the school they went to before they went to Liahona High School. It's called Auriaria Kokoi Ataria School or also known as AKAS school on the island of Tarawa. Two years later, the church converted that school into Moroni Community School, 
which no was way. later called Moroni High School. Yes. No. Oh my yes. goodness. This is all true. As the students of Moroni High School embraced the restored gospel and spread its message across the islands, the school gained a reputation as a quote-unquote city on a hill and a place of study and faith. One of these first converts of the missionaries was Iotuatune. He was sent to AKAS High School in Tarawa to get a better education. And while he was there, he learned about an opportunity to go to Liahona High School on a scholarship program. He was on another island originally. So he grew up in another island. He didn't really have access to education. His grandma enrolled him into AKAS High School and sent him to Tarawa to go to this school specifically. So he was playing a game of catch up, essentially. And then while he's at this high school, his friends and teachers start talking about Liahona High School and the education provided there and the environment that it has there. Didn't really talk much about like the gospel because again, like it wasn't widely known at this point. And he desperately wanted to go and get a better education. He was selected to be in the scholarship program, even though he was behind in his studies. Mm-hmm. So he gets yeah. selected and he gets to go to Liahona High School. While he's at Liahona High School, he is taught the gospel by his friends, and he fully embraces it. In 1975, he is baptized at 16 years old. A few months after his baptism, the first missionaries are called to serve in his home country of Kiribati, and they organize the first branch in Tarawa, which is the capital. In 1976, which is mostly consisted of family members of the first missionaries. Like, how cute is that? So, like, siblings, parents, aunts, uncles, Uh cousins, everyone just joins the church. It's so cute. Then, in 1979, Tune was called to serve a full-time mission in his home country of Kiribati. And by the time he completed his mission, there were over 500 members and multiple branches in Kiribati, all on like different islands. Tune became later the principal of Moroni High School, his former high school, AKAS High School. And he was called to be a district president. In 1996, the first stake was organized in Tarawa. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. So cool. I just love it so much. So now I'll give you the quick stats about Kiribati. There is one mission. It's actually part of the Marshall Irons Marujo mission. There are 37 wards and branches in Kiribati. So that's almost, or no, that's more than one per island because there's 33 islands. So that's at least one per island. There's two stakes, over 20,946 members, which is 17.81% of the population what? of Kiribati. Yeah. That's almost 20%. 20%. Yeah, I know. I remember. What? Yeah, it's Whoa. cool. <laughs> there are two family history centers, and in the October 2020 General Conference, a temple was announced on the Yay. island of Tarawa. Yes. About time. Oh my yeah. gosh, they deserve it. That's they deserve it and they need to have it. Like right? it's not about deserving. That is incredible. Well, and then I just love that idea because then to me it ties in the idea of the image of love that is supposed to be shared throughout this religion that we live. They shared a happy message, a joyful message through friends and family, and everyone wanted to be a part of it. Like that's I don't know, I just think that's like really beautiful. 
I love the story of this country getting the gospel and like spreading it. And again, because they live halfway between Hawaii and Fiji, like those mm-hmm. are their options for temples. And like obviously <gasps> yeah. before wow. before the temple in Fiji, I feel like Hawaii was probably the closest temple that they had to go to. That was their option. Probably. So dang. Wild. Wild. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. All right, hopefully they get that temple soon. Moving on to Europe. Europe is made up of 44 countries. And the church is involved in quite a few, just like the other nation, the other continents. So they are in Armenia, Austria, Belgium, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Finland, France, Georgia, Germany, Greece, Guernsey, Hungary, Isle of Man, Italy, Jersey, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Serbia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Turkey, Ukraine, and of course the United Kingdom. Dude, there are so many. That's so cool. Um, So today, out of the countries that we picked from, we picked Iceland. Sure, we all have a pretty good idea where it is. It's a small island nation northwest of the UK in the Arctic Ocean. Right now, it's, it's in a pretty interesting situation because there is no mission. But it was part of the Denmark-Copenhagen mission in the 70s. But there wasn't really enough information, at least from what we could locate, about the potential missions right now. We do know that there are three branches that make up one district and around 300 members. Once again, we have a great story for this. It starts out in 1851 when Gumander Gumansen and I really hope that was somewhat correct. They were when they were baptized in Denmark while working as goldsmiths. They were called to return home and be missionaries. The people of Iceland were not keen on missionaries, so they often told one another to avoid the missionaries. Despite this opposition, they were able to get a few people baptized from a series of islands off the south coast of Iceland. After a year, the men were banned by the government from preaching the gospel and were forced to stop. A few months later as well, unfortunately, Farin Hefteosan died in a boating accident, leaving Gomander Gomansen as the highest priesthood holder in the country. He was a teacher, unable to baptize or give blessings. And even though he was unable to preach the gospel or baptize anyone, he continued to quietly serve and hold meetings for the few members of the church there. As he did this, 24 investigators began coming to services and learning about the gospel and secret meetings from him while he waited for two years for assistance from the Denmark mission president for missionaries or priesthood holders. Finally, the mission president came to Iceland with missionaries and ordained him to elder and set Gomander Gomansen apart as a first branch president in Iceland. He continued to serve as branch president until he was called to serve a mission in Denmark in 1854. Man. All of that that happened within five years. Like, can we just talk about that? That happened all within a five-year time span. You find you find religion that speaks to your soul and you're like, I want this. Yes, I will go back home to my country and tell everyone, even though they don't really want to hear it. So I'm going to have to be careful and just speak to a few people about this and do what I can. 
and then my friend died and I have to do this alone. And I'm a teacher. I don't have the priesthood authority to do this work. Like how? Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. My brain is having a hard time computing how he pushed through this. Also, these it blew my mind people. that this happened in the 1850s. The church was in Iceland in the 1850s. That's what? true. That's what? like 20 years after, yeah, like when it got established. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We don't talk about this enough. Oh we my need gosh. We talk about these things more. Like we need to so hear these more. stories more. This is crazy. Man, dude, some of these older older members, older stories are just, oh, they're amazing. We need more of these. All right, of course, the so things continue to be a little wild over in Iceland, understandably. So the country has gone through periodic bans on missionary work since 1858, either for government reasons or due to war. Due to these periodic bans, Icelanders would continue to join the church and often leave Iceland, choosing to emigrate to North America instead, leaving Iceland with no established branches. The website reads, Recent converts often led the church with the assistance of Icelandic members who returned as missionaries. Missionary work in Iceland was discontinued at the outset of World War I. By the end of World War II, the church had slowly rebuilt its presence in Iceland. U.S. servicemen stationed near Keflavik formed a small congregation in 1945 and began preaching the gospel. Several missionaries from the Denmark-Copenhagen mission were reassigned to Iceland in 1975, and then a branch was organized in Reykjavik the following year. The Book of Mormon was published in Icelandic in 1981, and the first meeting house constructed in Iceland was dedicated in 2000. A branch was organized in Selfoss in 2007. Although the number of church members in Iceland remains small, Icelandic saints form a close-knit community and recognize that the body hath need of every member, that all may be edified together, as referenced in Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 110. That's incredible. Actually, okay, no, I feel like I must have known a tiny, a tiny bit of this because I did have a childhood friend and his family who had been stationed in Iceland for a couple of years. So they'd come from Iceland straight to San Diego. And that was one of the first times I like really considered Iceland. And I just remember how they would hear, I would hear about them having to travel for hours to get to their meeting houses and the like. And it's just, incre- it's just incredible. The church basically was running on like brand new converts and like missionaries at that point for the longest time. And it still kind of is. Mm-hmm. And right. like it's to have that kind of faith and determination to be able to do that is just like astounding to me. I can't even imagine doing any of this. I can't. They continue also to today to be absolutely incredible. Like seriously, if you go back on that site for the church, there are a lot of other accounts that are truly, they're, they're just crazy. Like when two members of a branch presidency died in a hiking accident, leaving the new branch president called to be a recent convert who had only been baptized 11 months and a newly turned 18-year-old senior in high school to be his counselor. A senior in yeah. high school was called to be a counselor and a branch presidency. 
they, they both had to work together to overcome their insecurities and fears of being unqualified for the work, but pulled it together. And the convert called to be the branch president became their first district president three years later. So Insane. Hey, congratulations. You've been a member of the church a couple of months and you know what? You're taking charge. You got yeah. this. I believe in you. Also, I, here's your counselor. He's 18. He <laughs> just turned 18 last week. He's you might know him. Have- Forgot that peach fuzz. I, oh my gosh. Uh, oh, what a baby. Oh my. Oh, that has to be so stressful. These people are so much braver than I am. They are so much better than me in every so way. Much. Oh, I bet they have some incredible stories, like even like beyond this, like of how much they have grown spiritually and the miracles that they've seen to keep the church going like that. That's crazy that's amazing i remember growing up in young women's and i was like i i could do anything that the men do like i could do i could be doing any of this right now and then i look back and i'm like no i couldn't be in charge of anything i could hardly be in charge of myself and there you go having an 18 year old in a branch presidency man Iceland's amazing who still has to like finish his senior year of high school and like take exams and do all of that other stuff. Like he still has to be a high schooler and run a branch. You're not in charge of your preschool anymore. You're in charge of the ward the and branch, all the yeah. wards and all the people. That's incredible. Like, could not That's be simple. me. Could not Ooh. be me. So we're going to move on to the next continent, which is North America. So believe it or not, Americans, there are actually 44 countries and territories that make up the continent of North America. I hate that it's shocking because I've been to a few of these and I hate that I'm like, no, there's only like eight. There's so much land. There's so many islands. There are so many people out in the world. I would also like to point out that North America means like the very northernmost part of Canada all the way down to Panama, which is right at the very bottom connecting to South America. So for geography purposes, there's a lot of space. There are a lot of countries. There are a lot of island territories as well. Look at a map, educate yourselves because it's time to learn more. The countries and territories in North America that have the LDS church are Antigua and Barbuda, Aruba, Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Canada, Cayman Islands, Costa Rica, Curaçao, Dominica, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Grenada, Guadalupe, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Jamaica, Martinique, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, Puerto Rico, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, St. Martin, Trinidad and Tobago, the USA, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Quite a lot. But today, we are going to cover one country, and we have chosen Haiti. Haiti is a small island country in the Caribbean on the west border of the Dominican Republic. So it's not technically an island nation on its own because the entire Mm -hmm. island itself is split in half with Dominican Republic on the east side and Haiti on the west side. Some quick stats about Haiti. There is one mission. There are 48 wards and branches on Haiti. There are five stakes and districts, 11 family history centers, 
24,192 members, which is surprisingly only 0.21% of the population. So there's a lot of people on that little island. Um, and there is one temple dedicated in Port-au-Prince. In 1977, after reading a pamphlet containing the testimony of Joseph Smith, Alexander Mora arranged to be taught by missionaries and was baptized in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. On his return to Port-au-Prince, he preached the gospel and, and organized regular meetings. In July 1978, 22 Haitian converts were baptized and a branch was organized with Mora as the president. The gospel spread quickly in Haiti. By 1983, when Elder Thomas S. Monson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles dedicated Haiti for the preaching of the gospel, a district with branches throughout the country had been organized. In the face of political discord, economic instability, and natural disasters, the Haitian saints have proven resilient and faithful. In 1991, when a coup forced foreign missionaries out of the country, Fritzner and Gina Joseph, the first Haitians to preside over the mission in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, led an all-Haitian missionary force, and they continued to preach the restored gospel. So there's that loophole that I mentioned earlier, where foreign missionaries were not allowed to preach in a certain country, and the church found a loophole and said, all right, we won't send any foreigners. We will just have our members be missionaries and serve in their own country. And it has been very, very effective. So sometimes a good loophole is all you need. In 1983, when then Elder Monson dedicated Haiti for the preaching of the gospel, Elder Monson climbed Mount Boutier with Fritzner Joseph, who was then serving a mission in Haiti with his wife. As they looked over a sprawling capital city just before the prayer was offered, clouds rolled in and obscured their view of the island. Elder Monson prayed, quote, Let thy spirit shine upon Haiti and bless the membership of the church particularly, end quote. Joseph recalled, quote, When we opened our eyes, we could see the city. It was bright again. The light breaking through the clouds of the city that day became a metaphor for Joseph as he witnessed the development of the church in Haiti. Over the next three decades, Joseph watched as the saints supported each other through economic challenges, political upheaval, personal tragedies, and natural disasters. We've had some dark days and challenges in our country, but after that, the light will come, reflected Joseph. The saints in Haiti shouted and wept for joy in April 2015 when church president Thomas S. Monson, who had also announced the church would be allowed to be spread in Haiti in 1983, announced the construction of a temple in Port-au-Prince. Fritzner and his wife Gina then became the first temple president and matron at the Port-au-Prince Haiti Temple in 2019, which is just incredible he was there from the beginning like he saw it all yeah. the way through and i mean yeah haiti has been through so much so much and to still be able to have that that light to have their faith that's just incredible i cannot imagine all that that is just amazing i love this story i love it so much in more recent years, many Haitians have been fleeing the country due to civil unrest and finding themselves immigrating to countries like the Dominican Republic, the United States, and Canada. These countries have found large pockets of Haitian Creole speakers, which have pushed the church to open Haitian wards, branches, and missions. Yeah. 
The Boston, Massachusetts Haitian branch was the first Haitian Creole branch established in the United States in 1998 and has since become a ward. Since the creation of the Boston Haitian branch, additional units have been created in Florida, Montreal, and Laval in Quebec, Canada, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and Basterre, and Les, and I cannot do this language in Les Abim in Guadalupe. I, I don't know if it's French. It probably is. I failed French, so this is my life. But the point is, since the church has expanded so much and the members in Haiti have, like, the number of church members in Haiti has grown so much and emigrated to different countries, there have been an influx of units that are just Haitian Creole speaking across the country. And it's incredible. We had one in our stake in Orlando. There was another one in my old stake in Orlando. Like they're just, they're growing. And it's so exciting to see the growth happen for the members that speak Haitian Creole. Yes. I love that. And I mean, honestly, yes, we, we just need to have like more awards everywhere speaking languages where people can better connect with their with their culture with who they are to better understand the gospel in their own language it's so important and i love that so so much all right moving on last continent we will be covering is south america so south america just picks up where north america drops off down to antarctica right around there it encompasses 16 countries and the LDS Church is involved in several of them, including Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Ecuador, French Guiana, Guiana, Paraguay, Peru, Suriname, Uruguay, and Venezuela. So today we will be speaking about Ecuador. So for those of us who don't know where Ecuador is, it is a small country on the western coast of South America that the equator goes directly through the middle of. It's right there. So a few fun quick stats include there are five missions there. There are 313 wards and branches. There's 42 stakes and districts, 57 family history centers. Oh, my gosh. And 253,781 members, which just encompasses 1.42% of the population. Wow. And there is currently one temple dedicated in Guayaquil, with one also announced in Quito in the April 2016 conference with groundbreaking in May 2019. The first missionaries arrived in Ecuador in 1965. They did this under the direction of the then Elder Spencer W. Kimball of the Quorum of the Twelfth. He expressed his belief that teaching the gospel to the descendants of ancient Andean Indians would help fulfill God's promise to bring the Book of Mormon to the Lamanites. I I don't want to... I mean, he has good intentions, but he really didn't do that right. I, I feel like we're going to have to do like an episode on explaining why that was all wrong um, yeah. down the line. Honestly, um, like it really so, is the best intentions with poor execution, at least like verbally execution, because right. truly he was like always in Ecuador. Like through my research, he was frequently going to Ecuador and doing missionary work and outreach efforts. So like truly the, desire was there the intention the good intentions were there 
but the delivery was not. <laughs> oh, right. He, his part of being that. like, we <laughs> want to bring the gospel to people who do not currently have it is a good and honorable sort of kind of idea. But the part of being like, these people are Illuminates who do not have the gospel is not nice. We're, we're going to have to like dive deeper into this sometime. Um, but we're going to kind of... <laughs> Keep it on the surface level and consider the nice expectations and the goodness that came from this, however misguided Elder Campbell was. So, as Tracy said, he did continue to visit Ecuador very frequently. On one of his visits, Elder Campbell instructed the missionaries to go to Otavalo and teach the Book of Mormon to the indigenous Otavalans. As preaching began, however, the missionaries and early converts met strong opposition. The website reads, rumors about the foreign missionaries spread throughout the surrounding Mbabura Highland Quechua villages, and without Quechua language skills, the missionaries struggled to overcome misconceptions and the language barrier. So on a return visit to Ecuador two years later, Elder Kimball decided to teach the indigenous Atavalans himself. A few members and missionaries, totaling 20 people in attendance, gathered together near a railroad in a small village, and Elder Kimball began his lesson with translators assisting in both Spanish and Quechua. As he taught, the crowd grew to more than 100 people and led to the teaching and conversion of the first indigenous Atavalan member, Rafael Tabengo, who later became the Atavalo Stake's first patriarch 15 years after his baptism. The first stake was then organized in 1978, and the Guayaquil Ecuador Temple was announced in the conference in April 1982. Prior to the announcement of the temple in Ecuador, the closest operating temple for the people of Ecuador was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is 2,304 miles away, roughly a 19-hour flight or 82 hours in a car or bus. In 1986, the groundbreaking and construction of the temple still had not begun because of multiple permit barriers and delays. In 1986, the Lima, Peru temple was dedicated, providing them a temple that was now only 1,119 miles away, which is still, of course, roughly a 2.5-hour flight or a 24-hour car or bus ride away. While it was closer, the saints still really struggled to get to the temple in Lima, Peru, while waiting for the temple to be built and dedicated in Ecuador. The website reads, the, tri the trips could prove difficult. Gonzalo and Clemencia Vina of Duran recalled being detained at the border, having their route disrupted by flooding on a major river and running low on food as they waited for another bus to meet them on the other side of the flooded river. Once in Lima, however, they savored days of service in the Lord's house and reminded each other that a temple would soon stand in their own city. As various logistical difficulties delayed the groundbreaking and construction of the temple, Ecuadorian saints continued to build up the church and prepare for a temple. In 1999, when the temple was finally dedicated, there were roughly 150,000 Latter-day Saints in the country. That is amazing. So they went from having an elder Kimball speak to 100 people one day um, in about like 1967 to then growing it to 150,000 in 1999. That is so sweet. Nice. And then fast forwarding to April 2016, President Monson announced a temple would be constructed in Quito, Ecuador, with the groundbreaking taking place in May 2019. 
Hopefully construction continues soon and they're able to have their second temple in operation. That's Especially because it took over 10 years to get that first temple because they announced it in 1982 and it wasn't dedicated until 1999. I, I love the excitement that people always build up around the temple, which is it, which is amazing. Like I know it's a lot of people's favorite part in general conference today, <laughs> um, which, which is great. Like we love to hear about new temples. It, it does hurt though a little bit. It's like, okay, like you said it's coming. When is it coming? Like we, we want it. We are ready for it. Please bring it to us. And then, yeah, still waiting 10 years has got to be so hard. Okay, so this is only six countries out of six continents when we are a part of over 100 countries today. Like, we're almost in 200. And this is only just a few of these stories. You just have to, like, think for a second about how much else there is that we could be learning, how much else that we could be gathering and educating ourselves about these different cultures about these people and about their experiences that they've had to see how that ties into our own experiences and how we can grow our faith as well i just love it we truly are a global church and personally at least in america we don't we don't consider this enough we really don't think about this enough like we've said this so many times through this episode that like our minds have been blown so many times in our research about these different countries and how they got the church, how the church grew in their countries, and like their journeys up to getting a temple for most of them as well. It's not only fun information to know, but it's so important for us to know about these stories for so many reasons. Yes, the church is based out of Salt Lake City, and we tend to drive a lot of focus about culture and life in the church from Salt Lake City because that's the epicenter. But when we do this, we are often excluding millions of members outside of the church around the world. A really simple example of this would be from this last general conference where President Oaks presented his talk centered on America's founding of the Constitution. Even though that talk was great and it really chastised a lot of Americans like it should have, he definitely pulled this from his personal beliefs, religious principles, and his work experience as a lawyer and as a judge in America. And yes, we understand it's important to talk about what you know or pull from your own experience, but you have to remember your audience as well. Like you're talking to a worldwide church who doesn't really know anything about the founding of America, and they don't have a clear understanding of what Oaks is even talking about. I really find it funny to think about it in that perspective. Like, I don't know the founding of Haiti. I don't know how it became a country. So I don't see how a talk about the founding of this country would be particularly important or applicable to me in my life. And similarly, that's kind of what we need to start thinking about more in the church is does this apply to the church as a whole or does this only apply to a certain subset within the church because if it doesn't apply to the entire body of the church maybe we should retool it or throw it out and focus on the entire body instead exactly well said yeah we need to be putting more concentration into acknowledging our privilege on what we do what we what we think we know um considering our involvement in whether or not, you know, we're American, our our gender, you know, we tend to let the men speak more. And yes, we do have more male leaders and everything, but are they the majority of the church? 
We and I mean, Elder Gong also pointed out that we have more single members than you know married, and that's something that we need to be taking more into consideration. We need to be checking what we are saying and making sure that we are speaking to everyone and not just prioritizing a few. There is still a lot that I think that the church has to work on, not just our um, some of the privileges that we kind of take for granted, especially as an American base. Um, and white male based church and everything but it's something that we have to be looking into and doing better to be aware of i mean there is a reason why the church does get called out for sending missionaries around the world in regards to like colonization like that's still a conversation that needs to be addressed and i mean like many churches around the 19th century everyone believed that the that the white way was the right way and we need to be working harder than we are currently to erase that notion. Like we're a global church. It's not about America. It's not about being, you know, white. It's not about any of this. It, and we can't let that overrule everything. To do this, we need to be purposefully cultivating strategies and opportunities to open ourselves up to learning about other cultures and how, how much the church really is global. And I mean, I do believe that churches, church leaders are beginning to see this as well. While we've had odd fashioned rules set up, like, you know, you always have to wear church pants if you're a guy and you're not allowed to have tattoos. We've had a lot of like dumb rules that have kind of excluded people of different cultures, even if it wasn't on purpose. But there has been less force on this when it comes to other cultures. Like people are beginning to realize this and to be more accepting, which they need to be doing. For my personal experience, like this got brought up a lot. I'm sure it gets brought up for everyone, but the Tongans, the Tongan culture, they're easy to refer to in this occasion because they can wear their cultural appropriate clothes and their tattoos of cultural importance while still being seen in good standing. Like they can do it in their church centers. And I think that is very important. And I think we need to continue to do better in doing that and building that connection between culture and faith. Because none of that should have mattered in the first place. We shouldn't be judging or limiting people based on what they wear or how they decorate their bodies um, or how they respect their bodies. That shouldn't matter. But at least it is a beginning, and I'm hoping that it will continue to improve. If you do want to learn any more about this and about any more of these countries that we've mentioned, you can go to the website and check out more. This is just a small glimpse into what has been provided. And if you want to look into more about what the church is done to expound on the globalness of our religion, you can also check out the Pioneers in Every Land series from 2015. So this was all started by Elder James J. Hamalua of the First Quorum of the Seventy. His presentation was entitled To Every Nation, Kindred, Tongue, and People, Pioneers in Every Land. So he was the Assistant Executive Director of the Church History Department. And so this was a part of the Church History Library's lecture series in 2015 that was based on the theme of pioneers in every land. So they highlight the church around the world and they said, no longer an organization made up of mostly U.S. members, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has spread from Tahiti to Taiwan. Latter-day Saint men and women are building up the kingdom of God all over the world. All are invited to come hear their stories feel their challenges, and be inspired by their faith. I, I just love it. I, I've always loved learning about other cultures. I do not do it enough. I, like, I want to know everything. There, there are so many stories throughout history of mankind 
that we can and should be learning about. The church is everywhere. We're everywhere. Like you can chill out with your American patriotism, chill out with that and learn what it's like to be in other nations and where the church is, because it's amazing. We need to be listening to their stories. Everyone has so much to share and it is beautiful. And you can't just focus on one small aspect of the overall tapestry of the church. I think a lot of this comes back to what we talked about with Taryn a couple weeks ago, which I is was thinking about that. diversity and inclusion. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we don't just mean like acknowledging that there are other cultures and there are other subsets of people around the world. We know that they exist. It's more than just acknowledging their existence. It is giving them a seat at the table, giving them an opportunity to speak and letting their voices be heard. Not only letting their voices be heard, but fully integrating them into whatever you are doing. When we are thinking about the worldwide church and we're thinking about the global church and the impact that the members of the church have from all over the world, we have to really give them a chance to share their stories. And we have to acknowledge the incredible faith that they have to be able to make something out of nothing. Because all of these stories that we've shared today are a fraction of the stories that are out there. These saints had literally nothing in pretty much every single country we talked about today. And some of the countries didn't have even written materials in their language for a hundred years while the church was new in their country. A hundred years. Could you imagine being in America and not having a Book of Mormon in English for a hundred years and you just have to go by faith? I can tell you right now that 90% of the church population in this country would not be here if that's what we had to deal with because we are babies. <laughs> like we are, we are, yeah. we are yeah. such babies. <laughs> we are so privileged and we don't understand how blessed and how privileged we are as members of the church in America. So I'm going to echo what Kaylee said again. Chill out with your patriotism, chill out with your nationalism, learn from other countries, learn about their stories, and learn something about their faith because it will change your view of so many things. It will change your view of the world, it will change your view of your own testimony, and it will change your view of yourself, truly. Amen. So I want to end off with one last quote because... We do need to consider our international leaders and our refugee leaders. You've got one of those in Utah today. We have uh, Dieter F. Uchtdorf. In his October 2002 general conference talk titled The Global Church Blessed by the Voice of the Prophets, he said, God will deal with all the human family equally. We might be in a large ward or a small branch. Our Climate or vegetation may differ, the cultural background and language might vary, and the color of our skin could be totally different. But the universal power and blessings of the restored gospel are available to all, irrespective of culture, nationality, political system, tradition, language, economic environment, or education. We can be blessed greatly by the Lord. Everyone deserves and has the opportunity to be blessed by the Lord. And in acknowledging this, we need to understand that everyone is worthy of love and we need to be giving them a chance to live and to speak up so that we can truly love them as the great big family that we are meant to be.
So with that being said, thank you guys so much for joining us today on our discussion about the worldwide church. This was incredible. A lot of fun. We hope you learned something, <laughs> at least like we did. <laughs> Truly, like we want to do this again in the future. And hopefully, I mean, our goal, obviously, is to highlight people specifically mm-hmm. from other countries. So if you yes. are a listener from another country, even if you have emigrated to America and you are originally from another country where you found the gospel, please talk to us. We want to hear from you and we want to get your story out there, too. Like I said in the meeting, like we acknowledge that we are in the middle of America. Like we are we are that and we're talking about the world. But so we we would love to be able to bring people onto the podcast at some point to share their own stories and their own experiences because you have a voice and you deserve to be heard. Amen. So thank you guys for joining us this week. We will see you all again next week. Gonna be great, you guys. So stay tuned for next week and find us on Instagram or Twitter in the meantime. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.